Well, our names are Teresa and Gumby. Welcome to Escaping Society. We wrote our own song so we wouldn't have to pay for anyone else's copyright infringement. And we live in a van and we eat from the trash. Making this podcast open for cash. You better listen up because we probably won't last. Because we can't compete with nonsense. Hypnotizing nonsense. Welcome to Escaping Society. This is episode 125, Ramblin' Man. I'm Gumby. And I'm Teresa. Well, we are back in dirty old Durham. Um, been back a week, and, uh, well, Teresa, how you doing? Um, uh, well, Durham kind of stinks, so I'm not doing so good, and it's so full of people, and they all stink too, and they can all kiss my poopy butt. Well... Uh, that was a bit graphic, but I agree with the sentiment. Um, Durham is just so full of people. And the water. Oh, my God, the contrast of the water. Um, maybe the mountains are spoiling me a little bit, but I got used to those clear mountain streams where you can see the bottom, and all the water here looks like chocolate milk. Like, uh, it's hard to kind of talk myself to even get into it. Amen! And, man, it's just like, uh, the people is the main thing. That kind of gets to me. And, uh... Hey, look, there's a dog taking a poop. I must go look at the poop. Uh, okay. Well, um, okay. Um, yeah, so Durham and, um, yeah, there's the water and the people and it's just kind of a, a big shock, you know, coming back down an adjustment and, uh. Teresa is actually out of town with her mom on a road trip, so I'm all by myself, so that's another shock. Like, kind of a big transition. What'd you say, baby? Um, I said you were beautiful and your hair looks nice. Damn, you did. Anyway. Um, so yeah, back in Durham, trying to keep my mind together. Um, and even now, I'm in one of the most isolated parts on the outskirts of Durham, a place we've done some podcasts at before that's my best bet for quiet. And uh, there's still a dude on, in the parking lot uh, probably looking at me like I've lost my mind. I just won't make eye contact. So, yeah, Durham, uh, you know, but there's some plus sides too. Like it's really nice. Um, I run into quite a few people that I hadn't seen in a while, and that was good, people that um, are pleasant. So, uh, Well, I'm back, and you want to know what was in the poop? Uh, sure. It was a lot of corn. You ever know how corn doesn't turn into poop? Isn't that a miracle? That's really strange, isn't it? Uh, yeah, but, um, can we move on with the other... Oh, don't tell me what to do! Don't tell me how to live my life! I'm going to my room! Teresa, you don't have a room. You live in a van. Oh! Don't put your patriarchy and your toxic masculinity on me and get the hell out of here! <sighs> All right. Moving on, um, one thing I wanted to say is on the way from the mountains, you know, if you're doing the rubber tramp thing, I want to give a big heads up, and I've mentioned this before, but rest stops, man. Rest stops are such a good resource. Uh, Rest stops are, they have water, so we generally keep like eight big uh, containers of water in the van. Um, when I say big containers, I mean like those kind of juice containers, the clear plastic ones. So about eight of them, unless we're going to a place we know water's going to be shy, and then we'll get more. 
Um, and two water bottles apiece just for drinking that we fill up when we're around water or fill from the containers. We try not to drink out of the containers because one of the things about water is storage. So we cycle through the water, make sure that like old water doesn't stay in the back because things will grow in the water. Um, and yeah, so water, you got the vending machines, which of course are full of crap and overpriced, but it's something, you know, a treat. It's good to have, you know, uh, a source of food around. Uh, you got the bathrooms. You got, um, really importantly, a place to loiter. It is amazing how difficult it can be to find a place just to be if you're not spending money. Um, so a loitering place is really nice. And we spend the night there. I, I take my time with rest stops. I give myself enough time, like even for a four-hour trip, I'll look at a map and see how many rest stops there are. And I'll spend like most of a day at a rest stop and then go to the next rest stop for the night, sleep there, wake up, maybe stick around long enough to walk the dog, make my coffee, and then move on to the next rest stop where I spend most of the day, and then the next rest stop where I will spend the night. So that's about the speed I like to move. I don't like to rush. Um, one of the things I've learned about tramping, and I think life in general, is it really is about the destination. You know, it's about uh, just enjoying the ride. So, um, yeah, I try not to be in a big hurry, and we use the rest stops like a park. Um, we hang up hammocks, we put out a tarp, you know, and have picnics. We really enjoy them. And there's places often like grills, places to cook. So, you know, many, many good things about a rest stop. Don't just blast through them. Take your time and really like look around. You'll also find edible plants and just beautiful uh, habitats, interesting plants. So lots of tracking, lots of good things about the rest stop. <clears throat> and we made it back here to Durham. And um, let's see, what do I want to talk about? since apparently uh, Teresa is in her room, so I guess I'm on my own for this one. Um, rambling man. I guess I'm just going to ramble. So one of the things that uh, I've been considering a lot, you know, with our uh, philosophy, you know, approach to life, what am I learning about being a tramp out here, is uh, what I've been calling the gather ye roses mindset. The, uh, the saying goes, gather ye roses while ye may. Which means when you have the opportunity to do something, seize it. It might not be there in just a moment. And haven't I learned that over and over? I've seen like uh, chicken of the woods, for instance, on a tree and thought, oh, I'll grab that on the way back from the hike because I don't want to carry it the whole way. Come back. Somebody else has already grabbed it. Things like that. And I've really um, been considering the wider implications of this philosophy, this uh, aspect of reality. Um, it's the importance of the fleeting now. We live in a universe where everything is constantly on its way to becoming something else. Everything is changing. You're changing. The person you're with is changing. The weather's changing. Everything is changing. So, you know, there's this uh, – I've heard it talked about in like the Code of the Samurai. I've heard Don Juan talk about this. But the importance of making a choice quickly and definitively. Sometimes you've got a little bit more chance to make a choice. Sometimes you don't. You just have to choose and once you choose, don't hesitate. The FOMO, fear of missing out. What if you made the wrong choice? You know, bringing that insecurity into the choice you made, like, oh, I'm not sure I made the wrong choice. You did make the wrong choice if you bring that insecurity in because you're going to ruin that path you're walking. So I'm trying to practice when I can bring it to my attention. All right, I've made a choice. I am going to fully commit to this. I'm fully committing to this. For instance, making the choice to be a hobo. I'm, I've really been working on, ever since the beginning, fully committing to it. doesn't mean I'm trapped in it. 
It's just a choice. I can choose something else if it makes sense to choose something else. But for right now, while I'm doing it, I need to fully commit. I am a hobo. Fully commit to this path. And if I'm going to explore it, then let's probe the depths. Um, let's go balls deep down that path. So that's what I'm trying to do. And um, a couple of examples over the summer was, um, you know, Teresa mentioned in our last episode, I think, when autumn came, the autumn equinox, we were in the mountains and the van was parked by this big uh, dead tree, really scary looking, heavy oak, um, huge widow maker. And it was not a big problem. I kind of looked at it and I'm like, all right, I don't see another good place to park around camp. Um, previously at another campsite, we had another widow maker and I did see another place to park. So I moved out of the way. I didn't at this campsite. It was like, I've just got to be under this thing, but I think it's going to be all right. This thing looks like it's been there for a long time. And I think the odds of it falling during the two weeks we're going to be here are, uh, reasonable. So I committed to my choice. Now on our last night there, it's like a test, a test from God, if you want to call it that. It was, it was definitely served as a test, uh, no matter where the test came from, but the wind picked up wildly. It was the only night that I thought there is real danger of this thing landing on the van, and it's going to crush it like a beer can, like a hammer hitting a beer can, because this is heavy oak. So, uh, you know, I'm thinking about my options, and the only other place to really park the van that wouldn't put it in the path of another hazard, like somebody coming down the road and possibly hitting the van, a safe parking lot, is 15 minutes away. And I'm thinking, I don't think I'm going to park that van 15 minutes away where we have to walk back and forth to the van for everything we might think of we need from the van right now, plus all the logistics of uh, moving camp so I can even move the van. I have things attached to the van. So... I decided I'm committed. This van isn't moving, so there's no point in having fear anymore. I need to have faith. And that's part of this gather ye roses, I think, kind of a corollary of this philosophy, is once you choose a path, once you make that choice and uh, seize that, that opportunity, that moment, and fully embody it, let go. Try to let go of that fear. Replace that fear with its opposite, faith. So Teresa was so worried about the van, the wind, that she stayed out around the fire for late into the night because she was scared to go to bed. I just said, you know, I'm going to commit. I'm going to get in this van. I'm going to have faith that if that oak of all times lands on me and kills me and lands on me like a hammer, it was time for me to go. I went to that van. I got under the covers. I had a couple moments where the fear arose in me, and I just let it go. I let go and let God, as they say. I had faith. And uh, obviously, we survived the night. Teresa eventually found her way into the van. We had a good night's sleep. Um, It happened again on the way back from the mountains that, uh, you know, we were at a rest stop, and we knew a hurricane, like the remnants of a hurricane was coming through. I had no idea the strength that those remnants would still be having. So I started driving from our rest stop we had been spending the day at to our next rest stop for the night. And it was one of the bigger distances between outside of Winston-Salem in North Carolina to uh, Burlington, if you know those rest stops on uh, I-40. So I'm on my way, and the wind is picking up. The rain is pounding. There's puddles. Uh, I come close to hydroplaning when I get in the wrong lane. Um, But I commit. I commit. I'm like, I'm not going to let fear drive. I'm going to let faith drive. I've made a choice. I'm not, I'm not going to just pull over. The weather's not so bad. I need to huddle down. Um, I'm going to get to this rest stop. I made that choice and then I committed to it. 
If I had carried the fear with me, the fear would impair my judgment. The fear might cause the thing that I'm afraid of to manifest. So I let that fear go. I put that cruise control on 70 miles per hour. Paying attention, you know, I'm not saying be stupid. I'm saying like, can you handle 70 miles per hour? Is it a reasonable thing? And it was right at the edge. It was a reasonable thing. So 70 miles per hour through the hurricane um, to the next rest stop. And it was terrifying. But it's part of a practice I'm exploring. And I don't know where the perimeters are. It's not a clear line like past this line is stupidity. On this side of the line is taking responsibility. I don't know where that line is. You have to be aware and awake. And that's one of the beautiful things about it is nobody just gives you a a big red marker and says, here's the line. You have to constantly choose, choose, choose those forks in the road that keep passing you by. Life Life is happening. Life is moving. You don't get to take a little time out. You don't get to go to a little safe, safe place and, uh, you know, kind of sort things things out. Um, well, in a way, you know, you can go in the woods and kind of slow things down a little bit, but life is still moving. You're still aging. It's still moving. So that's a practice I've been working on. Um, and boy, it's hard to talk when you're by yourself. Even when I'm doing most of the talking, you know, with somebody else here, I've got somebody to kind of talk to. And for a person that hates technology and machines, uh, trying to pour my ideas and heart out into a machine is uh, a bit awkward. Um, yeah, so (laughs) when we were at the uh, rest stop that night, we, uh, decided to watch a never-ending story while the wind is, like, rocking the van from side to side, and man, never-ending story. I haven't seen that in a long time. We smoked some weed and watched it, and that's got a lot of deep concepts in it. I highly encourage, if you have not visited the never-ending story for quite some time, smoke some weed, uh... Maybe drink a little, whatever relaxes you. You don't need an outside source. Just watch it, relax. And um, wow, you know, the big threat in the never-ending story is the nothing, this nothing. It's just a complete negation of everything, the, the complete destruction um, that is overtaking the world. And it's so subtle, you know, it's like, it seems like such a drastic thing. Things are just being dragged into the nothing. But it's like right in the beginning, there's these travelers from the never the, the land of the never-ending story. And, uh, you know, it hadn't even occurred to them that this might be a threat that's, like, bigger than they thought. They just kind of noticed it and were on their way to the empress to to share this. And there's so many rich metaphors in this movie. Like when uh, Atreyu, I think his name is, goes into the swamp. Saddest scene in the movie, you know, is in the swamp of sadness. If you let the sadness overtake you, you sink deeper and deeper into the mud, and that's the most dangerous thing. As long as the sadness does not win, you can navigate the swamp. So Atreo is like not letting the sadness win, but his horse does. And man, his horse sinks into the mud and dies. And uh, yeah, heartbreaking scene. But uh, another thing about the never-ending story that was kind of neat is If you've seen the movie, do you remember why it's called The Never-Ending Story? It's called The Never-Ending Story because the boy, Bastion, is reading this book, The Never-Ending Story. And as an observer, as a watcher of this, he's affecting the book. He's actually part of the story. And then at the end, it's revealed that people are watching Bastion's story unfold just as Bastion is watching Atreo's story unfold. And presumably, Atreo has heard stories of others who 
his listening, his receiving the story affects the story. And so it brings the audience at the end brilliantly in. You're watching it and you realize you're part of the never-ending story because you're watching. And then who's watching you? For instance, I'm doing a podcast right now. I'm telling you stories about my life. You're a part of the never-ending story. It's really a brilliant movie. I had forgotten what a brilliant movie it was. Um, One of the things I wanted to talk about this episode, I'm trying to go down my list uh, as without as any uh, without as much awkwardness as I can avoid uh, here by myself talking, um, is gifting. Now, we talked a lot in former episodes about all the gifts we have received. We have received kindness from people, uh, just wonderful people at food pantries and churches, uh, nature, these gifts from God, these uh, rivers, these winds, the sun, the clouds, just everything, such abundance um, that we didn't ask for. We didn't do anything to deserve it. They're just gifts, pure gifts. So I've been trying to practice gifting myself, and there's a few reasons for this. One is I'm working on these skills. For instance, I made 10 flutes. Now, what the hell am I going to do with 10 flutes? I live in a van. I made, uh, I can't remember how many hats, maybe eight hats. Again, we got two heads between us, not including Cheryl, like he won't wear a hat. But, um, you know, what am I going to do with all this excess? It just becomes burdensome. So I'm kind of compelled to move it along. I don't think my skill level is really at the point where I want to try to get money for it yet. If I really needed the money right now, I'd probably try, try to sell it somehow. Right now, I don't need the money. I'm not that close to my red line. So why not give it away as gifts? And it's such a huge practice in non-attachment, just moving those gifts along and spreading goodwill, you know, like... I would try to give gifts specifically, especially to people that I might see again or people that just moved me, that seemed significant, um, that gave us an act of kindness. And I'm like, wow, I can return it. I have a gift ready. And it felt so much better um, to deepen this relationship with even just a passing exchange with people. Uh, The first guy I gave a gift to was old Sam, who we've mentioned in other episodes, and he kept coming by, which was kind of obnoxious, but in a way, he was an an elder. He was sharing stories. He was giving us all this history we couldn't have had anywhere else about the land we were on, about the mountains right there. So to Sam's capabilities, you know, with everything Sam was, he was giving us gifts. So I gave him my, uh, my worst flute. Why my worst flute? Because that was the first gift I was giving away, I kind of wanted to try it out and see how I felt about giving away this thing that I'd poured my time, my energy, myself into. And uh, it didn't play that well, but it was a cool uh, symbol. So I knew Sam wouldn't play it. He's just not the kind of guy to play a flute. Took the flute, and uh, yeah, it felt good to give a gift. And then we ran into a family at Linville Gorge that was uh, invited us into their campsite, um, shared really good conversation with us and then offered us firewood and actually brought the firewood up the road to our campsite and gave us firewood. It was like, here is an appropriate time to give another gift. I gave uh, the very first native flute I ever made out of a PVC pipe um, to them. And um, on our way out of the mountains, this is the first gift that really hurt. They say, give till it hurts. This was the one that taught me what gifting really was. Because those other gifts, I had kind of prepared in my mind, like, okay, this is the next gift I'm going to give away when I have the opportunity. This gift, 
I thought I was going to hold on to longer because it was another PVC flute that just sounded so beautiful. I did not want to part with this flute, but we're in this parking lot. We're laying in the van. It's a little bit of a chilly, cloudy day, and it had been a long day. We just felt like kind of staying in the van and relaxing, and I was playing the flute. This little girl with her two aunts and uh, grandpa, you know, kind of tagging along behind, stopped in the parking lot, heard the flute, and was enchanted. She just stood there, and her aunts kept trying to call her away, like, come on, and she's like, I hear music. I hear music. Do you hear that? And, you know, every now and then one of them would like, yeah, yeah, I do hear that music. And old man came and saw them all staring at the van. He's like, man, they're having fun with y'all. And uh, this girl, you know, just eventually Teresa, like, I guess couldn't leave her hanging, her curiosity anymore, and opened the door and revealed me playing the flute and said, it's a flute, you know. And um, the little girl was just like really impressed with the flute and said, I want to learn how to play a flute. And, uh, you know, Teresa talked to him a little bit and they went about their business. And I'm sitting there with this flute. And at this point, I've got eight flutes left. So I've got, I've got flutes for myself, but I really like this flute. And I can feel like you're supposed to give this as a gift. And I'm like, no, <laughs> I don't want to give it as a gift. I love this flute. And uh, it's like, here's a little girl. Here's one of the people most likely to actually play the flute. An adult they don't tend to pick up new skills that much. You give them a flute, it's probably might be a sentimental thing. Uh, they might move it along. Who knows what's going to happen to it? A kid, a kid just might decide they're going to learn how to play the damn thing and walk around and toot on that thing until music falls out of it. So right at the last minute, I said, Teresa, can you still see that family? And she said, yeah. And I could see, by the way, she was looking at me. She knew what I was thinking, you know, like, oh, he's going to give that flute. But she didn't, you know, to her credit, didn't say anything to coerce me or anything. So I gave her the flute and I said, well, you give that to the little girl. And she did. And, uh, you know, they were really thankful. But, uh, yeah, that was really nice. And then we come back to Durham and I've been giving gifts away. Teresa, when she got picked up by her mom, um, I gave her five gifts to give to her family and uh, just had to let them go, man. Hats, flutes, just spreading the goodwill. And it's uh, one of the things about gift giving that I think is really important is the mindset of giving a gift. To hold on to things. I've always held on to things. I grew up poor and thought I was poor. And my mom, you know, thought we were poor. We acted like poor people. And one of the survival practical ways to make poverty work is to hoard in a way. Keep things. There's a good aspect to that. Hoarding has got a bad name for a good reason. But a lot of people ignore the good side of hoarding, which is don't waste. Hold on to things. If, Especially if you're creative and crafty, you will find uses for amazing things. Um, I even, like, we had to throw away one of the cases for one of our uh, folding camp chairs. I look at that with fresh eyes, and now I keep the, the elastic cord, cut that out. I kept the little black uh, little clip thing that you can push the button and tighten the cord, put that on one of my flute cases. I'm just finding new uses, repurposing for all kinds of stuff. So there's that. But there's also, instead of coming from a place of want, of poverty, without anything added to your life, if you look for it, you can also come from a place of abundance. And that's when you start giving gifts away. And, uh, 
yeah, I gave a hat to our favorite librarian who had uh, always looked out for us and, you know, really uh, went out of her way to like last summer to contact Teresa and said she had a crochet hook because she knew Teresa was looking for one. Um, I gave a gift to uh, the maintenance guy that checks the trash cans at the parks. Um, We've mentioned him in several podcasts and really nice guy. And he actually found a wooden spoon that we had lost um, before my mom died. And like just a day or two after my mom had died, he shows up and he's like, I've been holding on to this. I saw this in a parking lot, knew it had to be yours. And it was that wooden spoon, um, the pussy spoon, as we called it. So I gave that guy a flute. Um, yeah, just, you know, trying to spread the goodwill and it does feel good. It's challenging. Um, And before I part ways with the mountains altogether for this season, I wanted to give some tips on driving mountain roads. Now, if you're a rubber tramp like us and you're living in your vehicle and you're traveling around, the mountains are a magical place to be as well as a very practical resource. The high elevations are cooler. The water's fresher. You can find more solitude. You can find places where people don't fuck with you. Um, it is just, the mountains should be a part of your life, especially if you're living in a vehicle. Some of those roads, however, if you don't have like a big Jeep, even if you do have a big Jeep, are kind of treacherous. So here's a few tips. I didn't really know how to use gears on an automatic. I I drive stick shift and everything, and you know, it's kind of self-explanatory. The the stick shift itself teaches you how to use gears, but on an automatic, I just do reverse, drive, you know, the basics. Mountain roads have taught me that there is a place for low gear. When I'm going down a hill and I start smelling my brakes, pull over, put it in first, and then go down the hill. Uh, Keeping it in first will keep you going much slower. If things do get uh, more out of control, you'll be in a safer position to get them back under control, and it's a lot easier on your brakes. So using those gears, even in an automatic vehicle, is really to your benefit. And... Go slow, like I said, just like the rest stops. This philosophy applies to so many things. Enjoy the journey. You're on a mountain road, a beautiful road in the mountains. You're coming upon view after view, magical things, just extraordinary things. Take the time to savor them. Um, Gather ye roses while ye may, I think also is connected to that uh, stop and smell the roses. Even if you don't gather them, enjoy them, savor them as you pass. And it's also much safer. I see, I've seen some people just stupidly going down mountain roads and losing pieces of their vehicles. I've even seen some bad wrecks. Why? Take your time. You'll find that even in a big top-heavy minivan, if you tiptoe over some of that crap that you're looking at, you can get through it. You can get through stuff that you didn't think you could get through. And I think maturity, you know, it comes with age. Young people are, you know, it's part of youth to be more impetuous, to kind of want to challenge yourself, to see what you can do, to be reckless. There's a place for that, but uh, it's not good for your vehicle. So bring your maturity to bear on this, uh, this mountain road. And finally, if there's anything that you have a doubt about, stop, get out, look at it. And if you still have a doubt, turn around. Experience can't be rushed. With more experience, you're going to learn more things that you can and can't do with each vehicle that you have and with your driving ability. So if you come to something and you're like, I don't feel very confident I can get through that, 
Don't put yourself in a position where you could be in a really bad position, like stuck in a mud puddle in the middle of nowhere where nobody else is driving, or on a deep, uh, steep, rutted mountain that you don't feel safe on. Um, there might be time to turn around. There are other places to be. And with that said, find your edge. If you know that it's just more your fear talking, like ask yourself, is this more my fear talking or is this actually the situation? If you know when you ask yourself that, this is more my fear, I think I actually probably could get closer to this obstacle, get closer. Keep pushing that edge because you're going to learn more about what you can do, and it will surprise you. I do things with this minivan that I didn't do with a pickup truck 10 years ago just because I was younger. I didn't know what the pickup truck could do. I know what the minivan can do. I'm learning more all the time every summer. So that's what I want to say about uh, driving mountain roads. And um, as I'm giving away my flutes, you know, I put together this list of crafts to work on. And the, the way I did it was throughout my life, I've tried to be self-motivated with the survival skills that would help me escape society. And I come up with different things like survival overnights. We've got a whole episode on that if uh, that sounds like something you want to learn more about. By that name, Survival Overnights. Um, different little tricks and things that I kind of uh, subject myself to that I create that's like, all right, let's do it this way. And more often than not, what happens is it will work for a while. It'll get me a little further down the road. I'll learn some skills. And then for whatever reason, it kind of stops working. I change or whatever. It's just it's time is up. So my most recent iteration of this is I'm 45. I am not uh, as strong in my body as I used to be. I'm not trying to do hardcore Rambo shit anymore. My life is starting to go over that hill. I'm winding down. So what's left that instead of what I think I should do, like shelter, water, fire, food, what do I want to do? Well, are there any skills that I just always wished I'd known how to do? So I made a big list of those skills, and then I organized them in an order that made sense. For instance, I put all the skills that seem to have anything to do with shelter together, water together, fire together, food together, and I'm working my way through the order of priority of survival. Shelter comes first. You need to build a shelter before you worry about food. You can do without food for a month. Without good shelter, you could die overnight. So in this long list of shelter-related skills that I'm working through, I start off with tools and then materials, like how to make cordage, um, how to knit and crochet, things like that. Flutes is on the list. I put flutes under the shelter category. Why? Because of all the things, a flute isn't food. I don't really think it, uh, I couldn't see a way it helps with water, fire necessarily. It gives shelter for the spirit. This was just kind of a working hypothesis of where to put the flute. And now that I've made flutes and I'm playing flutes, that is indeed so true. So I just want to say a little bit about flutes. They are a survival skill. Um, if all you're paying attention to is your physical comfort, your uh, your temperature regulation, you know, stuff like that, that's only part of the story. Your mindset, your spirit also needs some kind of shelter. There are many ways to provide that shelter, um, but I think the flute is an ancient and magical one. A flute is a living thing. You really can feel that when you make your own flute. It lies there asleep until you breathe life into it. And just like your own body, 
When I take a breath, I pull the air into my lungs and then I turn it into sound, which I'm sharing with you right now in the form of words, information, stories. The flute, likewise, I pour that breath into the flute. It makes sound. It shares a communication. Um, and flutes are amazing. They often, the more you play them, they will sound clearer and louder. And they will even tune themselves. Um, I've had a flute out of tune that sounded really like low and uh, what am I trying to say? Like dull. And just after a day of playing it, it's like I woke it up. I breathed life into it. Now it'll sound crystal clear at the end of that day. It'll be in tune without me doing anything other than just playing it. Um, and they tune me. Teresa noticed this. She's like, you know, you're singing more in key. The flute just by playing with it, not knowing what to play, just exploring the sounds, um, is teaching me about pitch and tone and key, and I'm developing an ear for it without trying. It's just happening by itself. As I tune the flute, the flute tunes me. It's an extraordinary relationship. The flute is definitely one of the most magical things I've ever worked on. Um, and just like stories, music transports. If you're sitting around, sometimes you need something to get you out of a certain mindset. Um, I can speak for myself that I get into funks. I get trapped in my mind a lot. Um, that's a big weakness for me. So this flute is something I always keep around, and I start playing when I'm really starting to sink into that swamp of sadness. And that flute will transport me to another place, and uh, it will lift me. The flute is a a tool of transport, and also, um, what am I trying to say? It is also a summoning instrument. Here, I've got my uh, favorite flute, one of my favorite flutes. I call the Sugar Cove G because I made it in Sugar Cove. It's in the flute of G. But just, you know, if you're in a place you can close your eyes, just listen to this. And I'm not playing this to brag like, oh, listen to how well I play it. This is about the flute. Anybody that just explores the notes of this flute will hear this. Close your mind. Watch what happens. can feel that, and I hope you can too. It summons something. It does something inside of us. That's magic. Um, when I played the flute, especially in the, the depths of the mountains, we see and hear spirits both with and without form. We'll feel some of those things that get called forth from the flute. Um, and it's amazing when you just kind of play around on a flute and start exploring sounds. You know, I'll, I'll just walk around and... <laughs> I won't even play anything. I'm just exploring the sounds and how they go together. And after a while, sometimes music will fall out. It's like a, f a fruit getting ripe and then falling from the tree, and bam, here's a song. It's like, where did that come from? I didn't create it. It was just, it got ripe. It fell out of the flute. It's amazing. And, uh, you know, there's other sounds you can make on a flute. I just wanted to share a few. Um, but 
these are more sounds that remind me of nature. And uh, some of them are ominous. Some of them Teresa asked me not to play in the dark around a campfire because she finds them spooky. But uh, just listen. Just sounds that sound less like music and more like nature sounds. Anyway, just wanted to geek out on the flute a little bit since I have the episode to myself and I can talk about whatever I want. Um, and it's almost time for me to cut to a break. So um, let's see. I guess the last thing I want to talk about before we cut to a break is I've mentioned the family that we had conversations with at Linville Gorge, and they've uh, actually listened to at least one of our episodes and uh, said they liked it, but keep their privacy private, which we try to do anyway. This really isn't about the family. It's about the some of the topics we touched upon. So a couple of those topics I wanted to bring up and explore a little bit. One, something Teresa and I have noticed, um, and I think many of us have noticed, is how Donald Trump has become such a trigger for some people. And the news promotes this, especially some of the most left-leaning news sources like CNN and NPR. Um, they've really turned Trump into, if you've read Animal Farm, Trump is Snowball. Snowball was part of this uh, political movement, a revolution on the farm, but then Snowball early in the book was chased off. For whatever reason, he disappeared. They used his name to control people, to control the animals, to inspire fear. Snowball became the boogeyman. They're using Trump in exactly the same way. Trump is the boogeyman. Trump is such a trigger for fear with some people that um, even any relationship to Trump, what do they call the orange man cult? You know, if you might have voted for Trump, oh God, you're one of these hate mongers. You might do anything. You're trying to overthrow the government. Oh, these people, they're the worst. Just people who might have voted for the other guy. Donald Trump has become such a trigger in the hypnosis in our culture. I've, I've never seen anything like it. It's amazing. Um, I don't know how much Trump was a part of this. I think Trump was controlled opposition. I think Trump was more a part of it than uh, – this is why I'm not a Trump supporter. I got a kick out of some of the stuff he did when he was in uh, office. But I've always felt like he's acting like an outsider in order to corral the people that can no longer be corralled with the insider. So here's your outsider, but it's still the same puppet master pulling both sets of strings. That's what I believe. I always think about Star Wars. I hated the uh, – the trilogy they came out with with Anakin, you know, how Anakin became Darth Vader. It was badly done, had Jar Jar Banks, need I say more. Misa make a movie that really sucks. So here's this movie, but one of the brilliant things in that storyline is the way the Emperor took power. He controlled both sides of this war, acted like he was on one side, and he's pitted against this guy, uh, Count Tyrannus. Um, I think that was his name, Darth Tyrannus. But he was pitted against this guy, but in reality, this guy was his student, his apprentice. So he's keeping everybody so busy, especially the Jedi, so busy involved in this war that he's just goose-stepping right through, gaining power, gaining power, gaining more power, making alliances, making his chess moves. 
as soon as I saw that so many years ago, I was like, oh my God, this is what's happening. And over the years, it's happened more and more. It's become more clear to me. This is exactly what's happening. Trump, likewise, I think is being used in the same way. Trump is supposed to be the big outsider, the, oh, you don't like the government? Support Trump. Meanwhile, Trump is keeping you so damn busy supporting Trump that you're not really doing anything to make any real difference in your own life, the things that would really count and matter. You're just going along with all the propaganda, your little news stories on the internet. Once again, they've got you. Well, one of the things uh, this family shared with me is I didn't know this condition actually had a name. Apparently, it's called Trump derangement syndrome. I've seen it myself. There's people that are so hypnotized by this name, so indoctrinated that you can just look at them and just say, Trump. Watch what falls out of their mouth. They will start saying exactly what the news says. They can't stand. They can't let it be. They are so triggered. It is such a powerful trigger. We've talked about mass hypnosis before, and the three aspects of hypnosis are, one, a suggestion. Suggestion can be anything. Trump, for instance, the orange man. Um, repetition. My God, they're not letting it die, are they? Trump this, Trump that, orange man, Trump, uh, everything, you know, just Trump, Trump, Trump. And then finally, the third thing to make this hypnosis more powerful is you have to have an emotional attachment. If you get emotional about something, the suggestion sinks in deeply. However you feel about Trump, you probably feel a strong emotion. Whether you're strongly in support of him and the government just cheated him out of his presidency or you oppose him, either way, the hypnosis works, which is the beautiful thing for those who want to hypnotize us. So that was interesting and something to watch out for. And another thing that uh, we touched upon in our conversation with the family, but we kind of, you know, it's got a lot to do with what I've seen outside of that guy walking his dogs to Sherlock going crazy, is um, the one of the things that is troublesome that we're seeing more and more Evil likes the shadows. Bad things like the shadows. That's how it operates. It gets behind things. The demon behind you is much more dangerous than the demon you're face-to-face with. That's a strategy that's used over and over is obscurity. If something is bad, if something is evil, it will tend to obscure itself, hide itself, pretend like it's something else. Something is changing now in our culture. The evil is coming out and not hiding as much anymore. This is something that alarms me. A perfect example of this, and I thought we heard about this on a podcast. We were out in the mountains, so we didn't actually get to see any of the footage for like a week after hearing about it. I thought it was being exaggerated. Once I saw the footage, no, it wasn't being exaggerated, and that was Biden's red speech, what they call Biden's red speech. I couldn't believe it when I saw it. I couldn't believe a president would portray himself in a blood-red setting with a soldier on each side of him. If Trump had done this, people would lose their shit. Even Trump, for all he's accused of hate speech and uh, divisive speech, which he was damn sure divisive, um, he never portrayed himself in such a way. This is something we've only seen in blatant hate groups that are about to act. Hitler. Hitler would get in front of big, draping red flags. Um, This is a troubling uh, turn of events, and I would really start to look out. I think what this means is 
they feel like they've got all their ducks in a row, whatever forces are behind this. I'm not even going to blame it on Biden or even the Democratic Party. I suspect there's something deeper. The, uh, the Republicans are definitely not the good guys here. It's just something is happening that's embedded itself deeply in the Democratic Party. They are the moving piece on the chessboard right now. I don't know why, but they're ready to act. They're moving now. They've got all their ducks lined up. They've got people where they want. Trump has served as such a great trigger that I think they know they can get away with putting a president in a blood-red setting, saying things that are deeply uh, – we are being victimized. We are – trying to protect ourselves, and to, to have such a militant, hateful approach that people are ready to gobble it up. They knew they could get away with that, and there wouldn't be enough opposition. Who's going to oppose it? Who's going to say, oh my God, look at that. How can you do that? Well, what are you, a Trump supporter? Well, no, I don't even vote. Trump supporter? They've already put these people on the fringes. Anybody who would object to that is already on the fringes. People have already, through cancel culture, through the, these especially leftist ideologies, are not listening to those people anymore. This is bad news. A um, couple of other things is I've seen a change in the hypnosis. It's not just the portrayal of Biden that's getting more blatant. We've seen some really puzzling advertising. Now, it's common knowledge that advertisers use Edward Bernays' uh, tactics ever since the early part of the 1900s to try to trick you, to try to appeal to emotional things, to put words that don't really belong in an advertisement because they know that word will evoke a certain feeling and actually make you more susceptible to the advertisement. So you'll see puzzling things like, you know uh, – for instance, a really basic one is a beautiful woman smoking a cigarette. All right, what the hell's the beautiful woman got to do with the cigarette? That beautiful woman's going to probably not be beautiful as long as other women because she's smoking cigarettes and uh, probably isn't taking care of herself as well. So it's kind of illogical, but it doesn't matter. On a primal level, you respond to the beautiful woman and the association is made with the cigarette. Likewise, here's a couple we've noticed. Teresa brought this one to my attention. We had a Pop-Tarts box. On the Pop-Tarts box was this little saying written in cartoon letters. Eating Pop-Tarts one way isn't picky, but it's pretty cocky. What the fuck does that mean? Eating Pop-Tarts one way isn't picky, but it's pretty cocky. Now, as I look closer, another thing jumped out, but I wouldn't have noticed it if I hadn't looked closer and been puzzling over the statement. Between, in the word cocky, there was a strange space between the K and the Y, which leaves the words pretty cock on a Pop-Tarts box. Huh. You know, the advertising is taking a weird turn, and I think it's part of this cultural hypnosis, and we are all under the sway of this. If you're looking around and like, yeah, I've seen the hypnotized people, and you're thinking you're not, you better do some soul-searching. You are being influenced, especially if you're one of these people that is getting all this information from the internet. How can you trust the internet? Who do you think runs the internet? Do you think they're like just feeding you all the stuff they need for you to take them down? Of course not. Another one was on a LaCroix box, and I think we actually 
well, I don't remember where we saw this, so I'm not going to go out on a limb here. But on the LaCroix, LaCroix is a um, seltzer water that's got different flavors, like lime is one of my favorites. But on this box, it said zero sodium, zero sweetener equals innocence. Innocence? As opposed to what? Blame? Guilt? What does that mean? There's just a lot of puzzling advertising going on that it's not so much that I'm like, oh, here's a coded message or whatever. Why this word? Innocence. It's a funny word. So I'm noticing a lot of that and something uh, the um, woman in this family, the the mother, the wife, I, I don't even remember her name if I wanted to share it, which I wouldn't. Um, But she pointed out that in Biden's speech, and you'll hear it more and more, what's being used is MAGA. MAGA this, MAGA that, the MAGA people. They never say the make America great people. Why? Because MAGA has taken out of context what these words mean. MAGA means its own thing now. MAGA might as well be Nazi, the Nazi people. Um, MAGA, make America great again. That in itself It's not a bad idea, and if you keep saying the Make America Great People, well, it gets a little puzzling. Don't we all want, like, America to kind of be better? I mean, is that really such a bad aspiration? Just little things like that. So I'll wind this whole thing up um, with a word of caution. There's a tactic called – I've heard it called bear food. Apparently – and I haven't studied bears in captivity, but this is what I've heard – If you have a bear in captivity and you just feed it in like a big dog bowl, it sometimes won't eat the food. You've got to hide the food. The bear has to feel like they found it. Um, Apparently, this is kind of wired into them. You know, they know that they're supposed to go looking and find food. So something's unnatural about just having food served to you. They, They don't receive the food well that way. This is a tactic that's well known by the CIA, by a lot of people who want to manipulate and influence you. They will have information that they want you to receive, and they will act like they're hiding it. They're not hiding it. You're supposed to find it. They just hit it just enough so you had to go digging a little bit, and boom, look at this thing you just uncovered. Um, I suspect some of the stories we shared in the ABCs of CIA were bear food. Um, I suspect a lot of the things that I used to believe were bear food. One of the reasons to provide this bear food is to create and discredit what are called conspiracy theorists. Now, there are a lot of legitimate concerns. For instance, Biden's portrayal of himself as a, it looks like a a war chief in front of red curtains and soldiers. That's troubling. You don't need to be a conspiracy theorist to say, why the hell would you pick those colors? Why the hell would you pick that setting? What are you trying to convey? It really looks like you're trying to... uh, Upset even more the people you've been upsetting over the low these many recent years of we need to go to war against who? Against your own fucking neighbors because they don't think right. They don't believe what you believe. These people have to be stopped. This is bad shit. This is – I've never been uh, patriotic, you know, like, oh, pro-American, but this is very anti-American, and I don't mean anti-American as in like – tribal, anti-civilization. I mean anti-American like fucking communist Russia, like Iron Curtain shit, Nazi shit, National Socialist shit. That's 
how this is being portrayed. And so one of the ways to discredit this group of people is give them things that they can talk about and they can find where it gets all mixed up with as they're sharing legitimate concerns, then they start talking about subterranean lizard people. Now, look, I don't know if there are lizard people living under the Earth's surface. One of the things I've learned in my uh, older years is if I wasn't there, even if I was there, because the eyes play tricks, I, I want to admit I don't know. I just saw somebody share a post on Facebook the other day that was uh, talking about how stupid people were that thought humans lived at the same time as dinosaurs. I don't think humans lived at the same time as dinosaurs, but you know what? I'm not going to call them stupid because I don't know. I don't think the earth is flat, but you know what? I haven't proved it to myself. I haven't walked in a straight line until I came to the place where I started. I'm not going to call them stupid either. I don't necessarily need to agree with them, but I do feel like there's wisdom in embracing your own ignorance. And believe me, we've all got a shitload, a fucking ocean of ignorance. If you can't embrace that, you're going way out on a limb and you're driving yourself crazy and you're arrogant. And that ego is not going to serve you. So this bear food, you know, I would just say watch out for that. I think there's a lot of links being intentionally fed to make you look like a conspiracy theorist, to make you look like a nut job. And if you have seen enough evidence that you believe this stuff, fine. You might in fact be right. I'm not saying you're wrong. But when you're talking to other people, pull it back, man. There is enough solid ground to stand on. That if you just stick to the real arguments, the stuff that you can actually uh, communicate intelligently about, you've got plenty. You don't need to start talking about lizard people unless you're around a campfire and you're just having fun with your friends. Trying to share that information to strangers just makes whatever legitimate concern you have look ridiculous because now you look like a nut job and so maybe next thing you're sharing an actual concern but who cares you're a nut job you're, you've already told them you're crazy be careful of that i see that happening everywhere um it's not just the left anymore that's troubling me it's the right they are being influenced and manipulated and some of these people that were called conspiracy theorists that weren't because of some of the things they were noticing about the pandemic and the the pandemic and covid now they're starting talking about crazy shit, and I'm like, man, even if you're right, this is not the time to do that. Stick to your gun. Stick to solid ground. Oh, so I think that's all I have to say about that. So we're going to cut to a break. I will see you after the break or talk to you after the break. It's almost election season, and the Democratic Party wants you to vote blue. Yes, it's more important than ever as Democrats tirelessly battle against institutional racism. We finally hope to challenge the tyranny of old white men with our candidate, Uncle Joe Biden. He's older and whiter than anybody. Fight fire with fire, eh? But wasn't Joseph Stalin's nickname Uncle Joe? Not according to our fact-checkers. And disagreement is fascism. Many of you may be unaware of the proud history of the Democratic Party, beginning with its founder, President Thomas Jefferson. Democrats have always adored oppressed colored people. I believe that's people of color. Not according to our fact checkers. Thomas Jefferson, for instance, loved black people so much that he had a collection of them numbering in the hundreds. It was Jefferson's and the Democratic Party's love of the First Nations people that caused them to support the Indian Removal Act and to preserve our red children on reservations, or, as we like to call them, Native American resort communities. 
We understand that even when other groups and races don't always know what's best for them themselves, we do. Now, sometimes you'll hear people criticize the Democratic Party for opposing the emancipation of enslaved colored people of color. Well, I'm here to tell you that it was their love and deep connection to their sun-kissed sisters and brothers that caused them to hold on so tightly, so lovingly for so long. But weren't a few Democratic presidents members of the KKK? Hey, we've all been guilty of questionable behavior, even a rape or three. But identity shaming isn't our policy. We hate hate. And saying otherwise is hate speech, which we hate. But we shame and accuse people of rape all the time. Not according to our fact checkers. When we do it, it is called speaking truth to power. To say any different is victim blaming. Today, we, the Democratic Party, from the security of our inclusive gated communities, continue to celebrate our long association with oppressed peoples. Unless they're white. Those white devils can burn in the Christian hell of which I am far too educated and progressive to believe in. I can confidently say that all white people are evil, and all black people are noble and 100% right about everything. For here at the Democratic Party, we train ourselves daily to judge people not by the content of their individual character, but by the much more visible and reliable color of their skin. This is how you fight racism. But what about Mark Robinson or Clarence Thomas? They're white. Holding any other view is a microaggression. But... It is urgent that we stop the conservative extremists from keeping our colored children from exercising their science-given right to vote. Look, we all know that those people are incapable of figuring out how to acquire a free ID in this evil racist society. Why, I've even seen neighborhoods where good, young, colored men are apparently even denied the basic human right to purchase a belt. Is it really so silly to see a less intelligent, inferior race, weak, helpless, struggling, without their great white gender nonspecific parents, and to yearn to reach out my trembling hand to help? Um, everything you just said was kind of racist. Not according to our fact checkers. Black lives matter, which is why so many of our liberally supported policies strive to keep so many people of color safe and snug within the protective walls of our penitentiaries and institutions. Expressing other opinions is a form of gaslighting. If we were crazy, I assure you, we'd be more than happy to let everyone know it. We support diversity and inclusion. Unless you're not one of us. Then we hope you die. We support my body, my choice. As long as you make the right, approved of choice. Bodies making wrong choices will be publicly shamed, canceled, prevented from basic human rights, and confiscated by the state for reindoctrination. And the Republicans and insurrectionists will stop at nothing to ruin our good name. They've even accused us of hating babies, which is ridiculous, hateful. And an actual point of fact, a form of literal physical violence. We love fucking babies. I mean, we fucking love babies, even gross unborn ones. Here at the Democratic Party, why, just this morning, I used a precious little fetus to wax my electric car, and I gotta tell you, you've never seen such a brilliant shine on a Prius. Hmm. We use fetuses to keep our skin looking young. We eat fetuses with hummus, inject them for medicine. Hell, I've even been known to freebase a fetus or two. No one loves babies like we do here at the Democratic Party. I believe we also champion women's rights, but that's currently pending. A team of our own specially selected biologists is working around the clock in our labs in an effort to unravel that age-old riddle and to finally determine what a woman actually is. I'm pretty sure we'll be for them unless it offends someone. We'll keep you updated. We often champion causes that no one believes in. That whole Latinx thing, for example. 
We believe in following the science. Our science. Any other science or scientists are dark age, backwards, deplorable plague rats, like those anthropologists, psychologists, and the rogue free-thinking biologists who have always been right-wing conspiracy theorists. They hurt and offend science, and it is only through our unquestioning faith in science that we can ever hope to be downloaded into heaven. The Democratic Party has always been the party of unconditional love. Rainbows. All love is good love. We believe in love deeply, down to the core of where our souls would be. If your heart inspires you to pursue intimate relations with a child, a puppy, a child who identifies as a puppy, or an old man caked with makeup, perfume, who simply enjoys the feeling of a tiny, chubby, sticky hand down his pants, we will defend your goddess-given right to express that love. Hmm. Love trumps hate. We identify as being right about this. And we will continue to wage our heroic war against eco-villainy. Look, sure, we could just change ourselves. We could give up unnecessary luxuries that harm the environment. But we hold the deep conviction that addressing the faults in others will make us feel much better about ourselves. And let's face it, taking responsibility for ourselves is white privilege, and we are firmly anti-racist. So please, if you like the idea of imposing your will on others without their consent... Under the threat of violence, get out to the polls. The tyranny of the majority can only work for you if you vote and win, or appear to win. It's only fair. Donate now to keep spreading this message. More government always makes everything better. For everybody. After all, we'll get your money in taxes anyway. But trust us, it goes down better if it feels voluntary. Together, we can upright this upside-down, inverted, topsy-turvy world and put it right-side-up down on its head again. This ad is approved of by Wholesome Butter-Based White People. Hi, my name's Gumby. And I'm Teresa. We like to laugh and have fun here at Escaping Society. But right now, we'd like to take a moment to talk about something a little more serious. Do you know a dog who was born without thumbs? Sure, we all do. Every day, thousands of dogs without thumbs are forced into lives of dependency deprived of the ability to hitchhike, to turn doorknobs, thumb wrestling, or to give high fives. They can only give high fours. In our own lives, we have one of these special needs dogs. Over the past 12 years, I have seen the frustration in my dog's eyes when he wants to approve of something, but cannot give me a thumbs up. We like to think of him not as thumbicapped, but as toe-capable. For a small donation, we, as healthcare providers for our own thumbless best friend, can continue to provide services such as door opening, feeding, and the occasional toileting assistance. For a larger donation, we may even be able to buy him new thumbs. We don't know. So please, reach deep down in your pockets and your hearts and send us a donation today. Try doing it without thumbs. I call my right baby Michael Boudre and my left baby Conway to the O. Hello, listeners. Welcome back. Um, let's see. What do I want to talk about now that I have quite recovered from Gumby's earlier display of misogyny? Um, oh, now this is interesting. My hair. I'd like to take a moment to talk about my hair. Um... We uh, talked about your hair in a recent episode. Oh! 
Oh, well, what do you want to talk about, Mr. Man? Um, well, let's see. One of the things I didn't mention earlier about uh, coming back to Durham that is a highlight is the dumpsters. Um, this is the best dumpster diving that we encounter. Oh, that's right. Yeah, and I think it's just because we know Durham so well. We know where the good dumpsters are. So uh, that, let me add that to the list of highlights in Durham. Um, and um, coming back to Durham, one of the things that... Uh, this is the first time I have come to Durham since my mom died. And, uh, you know, it's it's the first time that I have come back and I'm not going to visit my mom. And that feels really strange. Um, I've been kind of processing my mom's death. And if you've had a close loved one die, I guess we all kind of grieve differently. But uh, it's taken me a long time. There's so many levels and basements and sub-basements to it. Um, but returning to Durham definitely brings it back to the forefront of, uh, you know, kind of something I, I am thinking about. So... I guess one of the things, like, I realized one of the reasons that I uh, I wanted to stop doing the podcast last season was we did just a couple episodes following my mom's death, and I had just lost steam. I'd lost kind of heart in it. And one of the reasons was, um, as I reflect back, it's I got kind of scared to have a – to get trapped in a view – when my mom passed, um, I look back and I have a lot of regret, um, and that regret kind of orbits around. Um, I could have done, I could have treated her so much kinder um, as she passed. Her last days could have been so much better. But we've kind of, we had kind of gotten into a dynamic um, where I had growing resentment, and. Uh, it was kind of a tough love dynamic. My mom, I would compare her to uh, pulling a, don- a donkey up a hill. She was just scared of life, and it was, I always found myself in the role of kind of being more the parent, of kind of like uh, holding her to task, you know, kind of like trying to push her. And um, in her healthier days, she appreciated that, and she acknowledged the truth of that. But as her health declined at the end, um, yeah, I, I didn't adapt. And so I guess that I kind of dragged that around with me. Like uh, I think of Jacob Marley and the, the Christmas Carol, you know, the ghost of Jacob Marley dragging around those chains. And um, I feel like I really fucked up, you know, my mom's last days. I feel like I really fucked that one up. And I was talking earlier about making choices, and life keeps happening. It comes at you fast sometimes, really fast, and you have to pick a fork in the road. You've got to choose. And uh, sometimes you choose the wrong path, and sometimes you don't get a chance to uh, try to repair that or make amends, like when someone dies. And uh, yeah, so like Jacob Marley, I come with a warning. That's like one of my biggest uh, burdens I carry, and there's no way for me to get rid of that. Sometimes it feels too heavy to to bear, and I don't know what to do with that. Um, I'm definitely doing some what Carl Jung might have called uh, shadow work. I'm dealing with my darker side, um, 
I'm not as kind as I wish I was sometimes. And I don't think kindness is always the answer. I think tough love is often appropriate. Sometimes, uh, you know, just being kind of a hard ass is really what people need. But when in doubt, if you're not sure, um, I'd say go with kindness. Kindness is the best, the safest bet. And, uh, yeah, in, in not choosing that and in being uh, harsh with my mom towards the end and not bringing her out with me as much and uh, really kind of embracing and acknowledging that these were the last days of her life, I was shutting it out. I think I just couldn't handle it. So I was kind of acting as if that weren't happening. And, um, yeah, I don't get a second chance. It's just that that simple. So I know that's kind of a downer, um, definitely a downer for me, but it's a part of myself I don't like. It's a part of myself that uh, I see more clearly since then. I have a cruel streak, and it's a serious cruel streak. And... uh I don't know if I inherited it, I don't know if I've cultivated it, and I don't know how to let it go. I'm not sure I can change it, but I'm at least trying to be more aware of that. Um, I see it in my relationship with the people around me. I see it in my relationship with Sherlock. You know, I just, I have to really temper myself. And uh, it's not easy for me to be kind. And I really admire people who can be. Like, you know, I bring up Peace Pilgrim a lot. Role model for... Someone choosing a path early in life, what path to take? God, there's one. Kindness and what she called uh, need level, just as simple as you can be. So that's one of the things I wanted to share since we're talking about uh, coming back to Durham. And, uh, you know, just I'm dealing with that. I'm dealing with my darker self. And it's really tempting, especially these days and divisive, that things are so divisive to... uh, Kind of think of yourself in the good camp and whoever's in the other camp is the bad guys. But I'm reading a book right now I just got from the library by Jordan B. Peterson. It's called Beyond Order, 12 More Rules for Life. So it's the sequel to a book I'd read before. I think it was called Beyond Chaos, 12 Rules for Life. And Jordan Peterson says a lot of stuff I don't agree with. He comes from a place that's very different from where I come from. But I like reading him because he is a thinking man. He is definitely thinking deeply about what he believes, and when he says something I disagree with, it challenges me, and it forces me to think deeply and delve into why I believe that. Have I just chosen to believe it uh, dogmatically, or am I still aware, awake, thinking, able to adapt? And I've had to change a few views um, reading things like Jordan Peterson. So... He's, uh, you know, talking about Carl Jung and the shadow self and doing that work. Um, And let's see, as we're winding this episode to a close, I realize I almost went an hour in the first half, and we're trying to keep these in an hour, so the second half I don't want to go as long. Um, But, hmm, one thing I guess I want to bring up in this episode as I'm rambling on, ramble on, is Fred Sargent. That name is uh, being kept out of the media largely. If you've encountered the name, then you've uh, got a good, uh, you've encountered a good news story that slipped through the cracks. Fred Sargent, if you don't know, was at the Stonewall Riots in, uh, I believe it was 1969, but it's kind of a foundational time for the gay rights movement. Um, I read about it in the Howard Zinn book, 
People's History, maybe, I don't remember which one, the people speak. But uh, I don't find myself supporting what went down with the Stonewall riots, but that's another story. They don't need my support. But people that are into gay rights and trans rights often trace the origins of this movement back to that moment, the Stonewall riots. And you can look that up yourself if you want to know more about what they are if you don't know. But he was there. He was one of the few people that is actually still speaking. He's a 70-year-old man now, and he was there. And uh, he helped found the Gay Pride Parade. Back then, it was called the Gay Liberation Parade, um, back when there were some serious threats against gays getting employment, um, being together, getting housing. So the Gay Pride kind of indicates the evolution of this movement. Uh, Let's not forget Pride is one of the seven deadly sins. So Fred Sargent showed up to the Gay Pride Parade in Burlington, Vermont, this year. They have it in autumn, um, unlike many other places that have it in spring. Um, And here in Durham, they actually had one in autumn. But he's there, and he is uh, part of a movement, movement now that is separating himself from the trans movement. The trans movement is trying to group the whole alphabet soup together. The L-G-B-T-Q-I-I-A, it just goes on and on. Um, so Fred Sargent is part of a mo- movement that they're calling the L-G-B movement, lesbian, gay, bisexual. And they say they don't belong with the trans. They are not mentally ill. They're making choices of what to do with their own bodies, of who to love. They don't believe that they are something they're not. There's not gay people thinking that they are coffee tables or uh, gay men thinking they are women. They also really oppose um, child abuse. And it is blatantly child abuse, uh, some of the trans ideas being pushed on kids. These kids might be growing up confused, and with all the influences that are being pushed at them from the library to the schools to, I mean, this stuff is just insidious. It's coming out of everywhere. It's really easy for a kid to get confused. It was confusing being a kid before, and now they got all this shit on their plate, stuff that kids should not be having to wrestle with. And these super woke parents with their fraggle fucking hair and uh, all this metal hanging off their face, just these damn people that are putting their kids in these really bad situations. So if their kid exhibits any sign, for instance, when I was a kid, I found this great big doll um, in the trash somebody left beside the road. I didn't play with dolls, but I thought this thing was cool as hell because it was as big as me, so I brought it home. If I had been a child of one of these trans parents, they might have taken that as a sign that I was actually born in the wrong body. Oh, I'm exhibiting, I want to play with dolls. I'm exhibiting feminine tendencies. So they might have started feeding me this kind of idea, which was confusing. And now in Vermont and other states, there are movements to actually allow teachers and other adults in your kid's life without your consent or even knowledge to put your child on puberty blockers. Puberty blockers can be really harmful to a kid. Um, It's... And it's the first stage in taking them down a road where they might get a sex change, not gender affirmation surgery. I don't believe that this uh, butchering of children has anything to do with affirming anything, gender or otherwise. It is sex change. They are literally changing your sex or mimicking um, a sex that you are not, no matter how much you get butchered and uh, scarred. So this is a clear case of child abuse. And so Fred Sargent is coming out 
among other people, a growing number of people, the LGB community, that are saying, we are not for this. We are not them. We do not belong together. These are very different ideologies. And so Fred Sargent, as he's attending this uh, parade that he helped found, um, he held a sign. And one sign said, gay, not queer. Don't lump me in with the queer. That was an insult back in the day. I'm not queer. I'm a gay man. The other sign had a big uh, like red circle with the slash through it, you know, like Ghostbusters, like no. And it said, no blackface, no woman face. In other words, don't pretend like you're something you're not. The trans activists in this uh, parade, some of them started grouping around him. They poured hot coffee on him. They uh, knocked him down. They stole his sign. They stole all of his other stuff. He brought his chair. This is a 70-year-old man. And uh, as they're knocking him down, you know, hardly anybody came up to help. There were definitely no cops around. And so somebody said, what are you doing? You're assaulting this man. And they're like, we're not hurting him. There's videos of this. You have to go looking for them because this is a media blackout. They're keeping this out of the media. They're keeping even the idea that there are gay people that are opposing this out of the media. So I wanted to bring this to everybody's attention um, in case you haven't run into it yet because fuck that media blackout. Um, There is some really sick stuff that's happening nowadays, and it especially pisses me off that it's happening to kids that they are being butchered for political ideology, for pharmaceutical companies to make money. Um, Let's not forget that if a kid, and some of these kids would grow up to be gay otherwise, so that's one of the reasons why the gay community, parts of the gay community, are really opposed to this. They're saying, you are targeting gay people. You are sterilizing them. If they get the surgery, they cannot have children. You've sterilized them. Not to mention that they are forever pharmaceutical patients now. They will always need your drugs. You have made them a forever customer. And wasn't that one of the big points in the first place? So I want to bring that out there. I wanted to use my time here to, to let everybody know about Fred Sargent. And um, I learned about this through Josh Slocum and his podcast, Disaffected. Um, if you have not listened to Disaffected with Josh Slocum, give it a try. This guy, I... Uh, I hesitate to support people because there's so many lies going on that you never know, like, who's what's really going on behind the scenes. But it sounds like Slocum's taking some chances. He just stood with Fred Sargent with, like, 10 other gay people in the middle of a trans parade. And you can imagine the treatment they got. Um, They got called hate people who are after uh, attacking children for defending kids from unnecessary surgery, sterilization, and... um, Hell, intentional psychosis. So if you don't believe in abusing children, if you believe this is child abuse, and how could you not? If you have a case to explain to me how this is not child abuse, please have the guts to engage with me. Send me a message so I can respond. I will read whatever you want to send. Um, I will not do any of this like crooked shit where I try to black out your opinion so I can win an argument and look smarter than I am. No, I'm just going to bring what I got. And I will engage that in the best discussion I can. I don't have Zoom or anything, so the best we can do in this podcast is you send me a message, I'll read it, and then I'll respond, and you're welcome to send a reply. But this is child abuse. So if you feel strongly about standing against child abuse, see what you can do to help. Uh, And Slocum is a really good guy to approach about that, to find out about what's happening, and to ask him how you can help. I'm in no position to really give you those kind of uh, tips or directions on how you can help. Um, 
but yeah, check that out. And Slocum is uh, actually getting pushed out of his job um, from what he said in his latest podcast now because they're attacking him. Like they always do. You have a different opinion than us. We don't like you. You should not be able to work. We want everybody to hate you. You should be poor. You should starve and you should die. So he's getting pushed out of his uh, career that he's had for decades um, because of all the pressure they're putting on the company to get rid of him. So check him out. Give him some support. And another thing that I am uh, thinking about here is we cannot forget who has done what in recent years. We can't forget things like January 6th, um, when this large group of people was obviously orchestrated to uh, be part of an event, a false flag, um, that, they're now, that they now call the violent insurrection. Violent bloodshed, guns, violence, violent insurrection, trying to overthrow the government. Here's a group of people that in another debate might be called right-wing gun nuts who somehow forgot to bring their guns. Imagine a historian looking back, trying to figure this out. Wow, they were trying to overthrow the government. These are people known for uh, gun rights and nobody got shot? How did that happen? It's like looking back at history and the American Revolution, uh, all the Americans left their muskets at home and you're trying to make sense of like, what were they trying to do? This was an obvious setup, things like that. Um, the Freedom Convoy, these truckers who are standing up for their rights to not be vaccinated, to choose what to do with their own body. My body, my choice, right? And um, they had their bank accounts frozen. Their own money they can't get to. They had saved up money so they could have what, if they were on the other side of the political aisle, would be called uh, their right to protest. If you hold the wrong view, you don't have a right to protest. This is something that really needs to be uh, made. We need to be aware of it. We need to not forget it. Because when these things pass, they are extremely dangerous. They set precedents. They are stepping stones towards totalitarianism. One thing I always oppose is uh, the state. It's weird for me to find myself in a camp with people who don't oppose the state, who might be like pro-American. But what we have in common is we're seeing something that is the worst part of the state, the biggest government, and that's the leftist uh, stance that's being pushed right now. This is more government. This is, if you don't think right, um, we will freeze your bank account. We will make up history. We will accuse you of something that any thinking person can see you didn't do, but join the club, you know? Prove to us that you are one of us, and so many people are frightened to stand out that uh, people aren't thinking anymore. They just jump on board the bandwagon. We can't forget the lockdown. We can't forget the people that uh, decided that they didn't want to have experimental drugs put in their body were called plague rats, were compared to animals. When you look back at history, before the most serious crimes against humanity happen, you will often see people compared to animals. This is a way of dehumanizing people. This is a really dangerous precedent. We can't forget the members of our family, our neighbors who supported this, who did not stand up for your right to choose something that they thought was best for their body, who let fear win. I'm not saying let uh, hold resentment. I'm not saying um, 
I'm not saying to choose anger. I'm saying to remember, to stay awake, to stay aware, because these people, I see it now. They're putting their masks back on, literally and figuratively. You know, I'm seeing more masks, I guess, with uh, whatever they're saying to be afraid of now. And I'm seeing people act as if this hadn't happened. They've shown you who they are, and they will show you again. People who respond this way will respond this way again. This isn't something to hate them for, but this is something to be aware of, to know who you can trust. We can't forget. We can't forget Judge Jackson. We can't forget a political party who claims to be anti-racist and hates racism so much that they demand that a person be put in a position, and they're going to seek a person that has a certain skin color. First and foremost, that was said, we're looking for a person of a certain skin color. That is racism. Your ability, we should be moving into a place if we really don't like racism, where your ability is the first thing we look at. If you have a certain ability, then you should have the job. Racism is when you have the ability, but because of your skin color, we don't let you have the job. That's racism. It is also racism that you, we look at you first because of your skin color. And then you get the job. And this woman stood up in front of everyone. And when they asked her to define what a woman is, says, I can't define what a woman is. I'm not a biologist. We can't forget this happened. We can't forget the precedent that sets. We can't forget that the same political ideology then decided to once again pick up the mantle and pretend to be champions of women's rights. When they just supported a Supreme Court judge that said, you can't know what a woman is without a biologist. I'm assuming not everyone on the political left has a biology degree. So they're supposedly championing something that they have just supported someone saying they don't even know what it is. We can't forget the insanity that's happening. We can't forget what we're up against. Um, We can't forget the child abuse that I just described. Don't believe the mask, and uh, don't be fooled again. So, coming up to my uh, the end of my time here, and I want to share one final thing. Well, I always say one final thing. We'll see. One of my last things. But um, I heard this on an episode of Disaffected with Josh Slocum, and apparently he got it from a blog called SavingCiv.com. I'm not crazy about the uh, uh, name, Saving Civilization, but considering uh, where some of the supposed opponents they're tearing it down or taking us, it's not freedom, it's not tribalism, it is uh, totalitarianism. So if that's what's being pitted against civilization, like I said, I will side with the people that are supporting civilization over the people that support totalitarianism. And this comes from an article called The Type of Coerced. Now, I'm not going to read... I couldn't write down all the, you know, what was said verbatim from the article. I just wrote down some points, so know that I am inspired by what was shared here, but these are my words. They say they are there are four types of people, and I found this really interesting. Four types of people, and this is how they react to coercion. Type zero, the indifferent. These are people that are incurious, that are uninformed, they're... Uh, unconcerned, and they're non-introspective. They don't really care. These are some of your uh, uh, potheads that play video games all day. These are some of the, just the people that just could care less. They're just going along for the ride. Sometimes they will uh, 
act like they're part of another group, but if you pay attention, they don't really have original thoughts. They're not introspecting. They are just following the herd. And so sometimes that herd around them is obedient. Sometimes it's disobedient. They could care less. They're indifferent. They just want to be part of the herd. No coercion is necessary for these people. Tell them what to do. They'll do it. They don't care. Tell them what to believe. They believe it. They don't care. Type 1 is the unbowed. Um, Many of our listeners, if you're listening to this, you're in this group. These people are not deceived. They are defiant. They're not submissive. And they see the deception for what it is. These are people that are often targeted and take the brunt of the hostility of the people um, pushing the coercion. So these are the people that state clearly, that stand right up and say, that's a lie. That say, that's not logical. That say, you're not making sense. Um, The unbowed, sometimes, like I said, the indifferent, type zero, will act like the unbowed if they're surrounded by the unbowed. But they are not truly uh, unbowed. They're just going with the herd. Um, Type two is the cowed. The cowed accepts deception to avoid conflict, but they're unconvinced. Um, The type two, because they're just going along with the coercion and they don't speak out, it does a lot of damage to themselves. They feel bad. Um, It does physical and spiritual and emotional damage to them. They know they're cowards. They know that they are living a lie. You've probably run into some of these people, people that when you are privately talking, will make concessions, will admit that you're right about something, um, but then they completely change their tone out in public. I've got somebody that pops into my mind right now that's a huge example of this. Um, And finally, type three, the enlightened. So type two, even though they feel like cowards, and they are, They're not as cowardly as the enlightened because they still, in their heart of hearts, know that it's a lie and recognize that this coercion is a lie. The enlightened may resist at first, but when coercion increases, they become true believers. They avoid the self-reproach of type twos, that feeling of like, I'm living a lie and I feel bad about it, um, by actually buying the coercion. These are the true cowards who irrationalize anything to protect their egos. They'll claim to follow the science while being blatantly unscientific. They'll claim victimhood while they're attacking someone. Um, They'll espouse love while frothing with hate. They'll push racist views while claiming to be anti-racist. You see a lot of these people. They are the squeaky wheels getting the grease these days, the enlightened, the type three. They have been coerced and they have completely bought it. Um, Reversal is their primary defensive strategy. They shroud themselves in a protective blanket of confusion. It takes you forever to figure out what the hell they're even talking about because they don't make sense. These are the people that uh, sometimes will say, oh yeah, I started off as, uh, you know, type one, the unbowed. I didn't believe it, but I was convinced. I followed the science. And then when you hear them describe things, it doesn't sound scientific at all. They're saying don't question. They're saying things that are blatantly unscientific. And one of the things that really uh, struck me that was interesting is how these can be progressive. Think about it. Think about some of the lies that are pushed right now. For instance, uh, that a man can be a woman, that it's okay for a man to compete in women's sports and it's completely fair and there's no difference between men and women and uh, sex is gender, but gender is actually a social construct and sex is a biological reality, but then let's flip-flop it and you know, just confuse it and all this stuff makes perfect sense. 
So you might start off as indifferent, like, I don't give a shit what they're doing. It's got nothing to do with me. And then when it starts, they start coercing you. You're supposed to bow down. You're supposed to uh, promote these ideas. You might, um, you know, move into the unbowed. You're going to be defiant and not go along with it. But then, depending on the kind of personality you are, you might start bowing down. You might start saying, okay, that makes sense, but you know it doesn't, and you feel like shit. And after a while, you can't stand that feeling anymore, a feeling like shit, so you convince yourself, yes, this makes sense. Yes, the insane is sane. Um, <clears throat> so I guess let me look at my time here. Yeah, I think that kind of winds us up, but I wanted to share that. So consider that when you're dealing with um, some of these people that are promoting these ideas. Like consider these categories. Um, I think most of our listeners are probably in the type 1, the unbowed, and the type 2, the cowed. You're listening because you um, know some of the things that you're being told are blatant lies and make no sense, but maybe you're afraid to speak out. Be careful. Before long, you know, you're going to have a hard time dealing with yourself and you're going to move into that type three. You're going to be enlightened suddenly. You're going to take and buy their ideas. These are the Nazis. These are the people that, uh, you know, I think of the type two, the cowed. These are the people in the purge that put the blue flowers out in front of their, their house that didn't really believe in the purge, but just want to, you know, we support it. We support it. We're, we're on board with you. Just don't hurt us. These are the people, the white people with the, uh, the middle class white people with the Black Lives Matter signs in their yards. Please don't hurt us. Please don't hurt us. The type three, the enlightened, these are the true. Uh, these are the trannies that attacked Fred Sargent. These are the Nazis. These are the true believers. These are the dangerous people. Beware of these people. They will say up is down, night is day. They will believe anything they need to, to stay in the group in power. Um, these are the people that we really need to resist. So, hmm. I guess I will uh, move on to, I'm going to bring back the listener write-in. We haven't done one of these since we came back. So, um, Teresa, do you have a listener write-in you want to share? Oh, am I still part of this podcast? Well, uh, no, no, sir. I don't really have a listener write-in. Maybe you have something? Uh, yeah, I got something here. Okay, so we have a listener write-in, and... Um, this is, he didn't send me a uh, name or where he's from, so I, maybe he was afraid I'd do a voice. <clears throat> I'm about to lose my voice, so he got lucky. But anyway, here's what he says. Hello, long-time listener, first-time commenter. I would imagine you've heard of it, but I didn't see it on your recommended book list. The Stranger in the Woods is one of my all-time favorites. I particularly like the audio version because the narration is outstanding. I have to be careful, though. I advised a friend's son to listen to it. Shortly after, he left his engineering job, Georgia Tech grad, and decided the corporate life wasn't for him. I still haven't told his parents about our campfire chat one evening that led up to that recommendation. Every time they complain to me about his newfound look on society, I just duck for cover. Stay safe out there. P.S. I so agree with you about those retired motorcyclist sports car enthusiasts running up and down the mountains every weekend. The Harley groups have to have HD logos on every article of clothing down to their undies. And have you ever noticed how the solitary ones either A, have to rev their bikes, pipes as they leave their gas station, or B, have to crank their stereo while in an otherwise quiet setting? I had better stop ranting. Hope you both stay safe out there. And yeah, um, we did mention uh, 
Christopher Knight, I believe his name was, the North Pond Hermit, in mile marker 115, the Hobo Cone House, the North Pond Hermit, and it's bow time. Um, and as we said in that, that podcast, I really recommend the book. If it's not on a recommended reading list, uh, we're not really keeping up very well with uh, our other stuff. We're just kind of doing the talk and the easy stuff. So, yeah, but I do recommend that book. It's a great book, and uh, you know, I wanted to share that uh, plug again for it. Um, good job on convincing someone to uh, take a path less beaten. Um, I hope he's enjoying it. I hope he's uh, getting a lot from it. And, yeah, the motorcyclist, man. I've met some good, uh, just yesterday I ran into an old guy that's like, oh yeah, asking me what I did, you know, he was in one of my mushroom classes way back in the day and uh, recognizes me and he's like, oh yeah, where you been? And I said, we were in the mountains. He's like, yeah, I used to ride my motorcycle up there and friendly guy, a lot of friendly people ride motorcycles. It's not a personal thing against these people, but damn, man, you can't find a toy or a pastime that doesn't cut through the piece of the mountains like a, a fart. I mean, it's so loud. What about everybody else's enjoyment? I'm so glad you're uh, having such a fun time on your little motorized bicycle. But what about the rest of us? Maybe we want to hear some bird songs. Maybe we don't want to. uh, We're not impressed by your sports car with the loud fucking stereo. So uh, maybe you could try to find something that's enjoyable in this whole wide world full of wonders and miracles that doesn't shit all over everybody else. Just saying. So, uh, yeah, if you have any questions or comments, please send a message to us uh, at our you can the best way to, to contact us is through our website has a comment option. And our website is www.escapingsociety.weebly, B as in buble, dot com. And uh, we have a YouTube channel. Just like everything, it's uh, horribly neglected. Uh, I've got some videos that might be instructive for you, though. Got a Facebook uh, page, which I am currently kicked off of for the next couple of days. Um, I made a comment that was deemed a threat. Um, <laughs> just a few months ago, I had a Wokey threaten to uh, hit me with their vehicle if they saw me walking on the side of the road. As far as I know, last I checked, that comment still stands. You can still find it with no repercussions. But uh, I'm on the wrong side of ideology, so I made a comment more in the abstract, something to the effect of uh, the post was about, I would rather have, if I was in an emergency, especially a natural disaster, one redneck friend over 100 PhDs. And uh, this guy was arguing, you know, in favor of science, of course, lefty, and, um, uh, you know, the PhDs. The uh, intellectual arrogance. And so I was saying something to the effect of, uh, yeah, man, I can't believe these people don't recognize that uh, the PhDs are the one that cause all these harms they're afraid of. Because the guy was bringing up bioweapons and stuff. I'm like, who do you think invents this stuff? Those are the PhDs. Those aren't the rednecks. So it's kind of like it's tempting to want to go up and hit somebody's leg with a hammer and um, then immediately splint it. And then charge them money for splinting the leg while they thank me profusely, forgetting immediately that I'm the one that hit their leg with the hammer. They considered that a violent threat worthy of kicking me off of Facebook for a few days, but not the guy who directly threatened to run me over with his truck. So, (laughs) there you go. Um, But yeah, Um, Teresa, any last words? 
Um, no, not really. Um, I just want to say thank you for listening. And, um, oh, screw this. I'm just going to go sit in the van and, uh, I will be in there. So when you get done, just let me know, okay? Okay, Teresa. And, uh, there she goes. Hopefully she'll be in a better mood next week. But, uh, we'll see you then. Bye. And we don't need it It's killing your kids So why do you feed it They'll tell you to stay But you don't need to heed it You can give them the finger There's no time to linger So Thank you for listening to our song It's not very good And it went kind of long Don't care if you like it Cause we'll be gone Over that next horizon We ain't got no address